Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I am drinking a peach margarita. What are you having, Jenny? I'm drinking an apple martini, and on today's episode, we're closing out our International Case Month by looking at the hundreds of murdered women and girls in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico. In the 1990s, the international media began reporting on the violence faced by women in the area. The Seattle Times reported that there is no exact data on the number of women who have been killed or kidnapped in Juarez. However, activists and researchers have attempted to create a database and map of the killings. According to reports by Amnesty International, the Northern Border College, and others, there is a pattern of gender-based violence and sexual abuse in many of the 400 or so killings of women in Juarez between 1993 and 2005. In 1993, the bodies of young women, sometimes as young as 13, many showing signs of rape, beatings, and mutilation, began appearing in the desert on the outskirts of Juarez, Mexico, a city of 1.4 million just across the border from El Paso, Texas. In many cases, they disappeared from the streets in broad daylight. The violence has continued on, and from 2018 to 2021 alone, the city recorded 491 homicides where women were the victims. Early research found that many victims were young and economically disadvantaged. Many worked for low wages in the city's maquiladores, or large factories, while the maquiladoras Initially produced clothing and light electronics, the industry has expanded to medical, automotive, and aerospace industries, among others. Though the areas where the factories are located are modern and well-landscaped, workers live in crowded, aging, urban neighborhoods or in newer neighborhoods emerging from land invasions, where they often build their own houses from materials such as packing crates and pallets scavenged from the industrial parks. Politics and social sciences professor Dr. Tony Payon has said that for years, maquiladoras preferred to hire women since they were seen as more punctual than men, as well as less likely to commit crimes or consume drugs and alcohol. Single young women from small towns had moved to Juarez in waves to earn money for their families, sometimes facing long and dangerous commutes to work. According to researcher Jessica Livingston, this migration of women created, quote, a new phenomenon of mobile, independent, and vulnerable working women, end quote, in cities like Juarez. These factories are widely known for their cheap labor and their exploitative conditions. Despite the expansion of the maquila industry, Juarez still remained a relatively poor and underdeveloped city lacking infrastructure in some parts, such as electricity and paved roads. The increased involvement of women in the labor force may be a contributing factor to the victimization of women and girls because of the competition for economic resources in decades in which male unemployment has been high. Along these lines is a related yet surprisingly possible contributing factor to the violence. The implementation of the North American Free Trade Agreement in 1994 resulted in the expansion of the maquiladora industry and created new opportunities for employment for women outside of the home and in 
the factories. The availability of cheap labor made it attractive for business owners to open factories in Mexico, and the availability of cheap employment attracted many, especially women, to border towns such as Juarez. Research has shown correlations between economic and political issues and violence against women along the border. Further, according to Penn State professor Melissa Wright, in the time period between 1994 and 2001, quote, the homicide rate for men increased by 300%, while for women it increased by 600%, end quote. These studies indicate the importance of exploring the effects of NAFTA when considering the possible causes of the murder of women and girls in Ciudad Juarez. It is also important to note the culture of machismo in Mexico. This essentially refers to male dominance, power, and aggression. Some have speculated that this machismo fueled resentment towards wage-earning women as these women were challenging their traditional gender roles. Research shows that many perpetrators of femicide are known to their victims, especially in cases of intimate partner violence. According to Livingston, gender-directed violence in Juarez may be a negative reaction as women, quote, gain greater personal autonomy and independence while men lose ground, end quote. We would also like to mention that there has been criticism of the blaming of machismo, as some say it's an oversimplified term that Latinos, that Latinizes the gender power relational changes all around the world. So who is committing these heinous crimes? Law enforcement originally believed the murders were committed by Egyptian serial killer Abdel Latif Sharif, who worked at Paquadoria plant. However, following his conviction on one count of murder and rape, the crimes continued. These have been blamed on people following orders from Sharif, street gangs, member of drug trafficking organizations, among others. Other women were killed by husbands and boyfriends. At a press conference in jail in 1998, Sharif shared that a police officer told him that the person behind the killings were, was Armando Martinez, the adopted son of a prominent Juarez bar owner. Sharif's source, Victor Valenzuela Rivera, said that he had overheard Martinez bragging about the murders at the Safari Club, one of his father's bars, and a place frequented by police officers and narco-traficantes, which are narcotics traffickers. Valenzuela insisted that Martinez, who also goes by Alejandro Menez, has said he was being has said he was being protected by government officials and the police and that he had bragged about his involvement in the trafficking of drugs and jewelry. In Juarez, rampant impunity gives perpetrators confidence they won't be caught. The vast majority of crimes are never punished, according to many researchers, including some Mexican government studies. 
Police and government officials have been accused of responding with indifference to the crimes against women, as well as exhibiting tolerance for such crimes, conducting inadequate and negligent investigations, ineffectively responding to the crimes, and failing to prevent and protect women from violence. It's been shown that police have failed to collect clothing fragments and other DNA It's been shown that police have failed to collect clothing fragments and other evidence at the sites where women's bodies are discovered. They have mixed up DNA tests, destroyed important evidence, and have allegedly returned some young women's remains to the wrong families. Dr. Payon says economic exploitation, weak government institutions, organized crime, and the creation of trafficking corridors running through the border city have created a quote-unquote perfect storm in Juarez. Less than 20 men have been convicted of 20 of the 400-plus murders. When convictions do occur, they are typically controversial. Law enforcement have been accused of conducting rushed investigations with with questionable methodology and integrity. Suspects that have been apprehended have claimed that they were tortured into confessing, which has put the legitimacy of both investigations and convictions into question. There have been several international rulings against Mexico for its inadequate response to the increasing violence against women. In 2004, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women conducted an inquiry into the allegations of hundreds of murders of women and girls taking place in Juarez. The committee concluded that the measures undertaken by the Mexican government in response to gendered violence against women leading up to the time of their inquiry were, quote, few and ineffective at all levels of the state, end quote. Their recommendations, though not legally binding, were influential in the public sphere. Let's hear the stories of a few victims and their families. Ernestina Enriquez Fierro says her youngest daughter, Adriana Sarmiento Enriquez, 15, was last seen alive in January 2008, catching a bus in Juarez's city center after school. Adriana had lots of friends and loved music and dancing and collecting toy frogs. Enriquez Fierro, who supports her family as a housekeeper, says they searched, quote, every area downtown, every neighborhood, every bus. We never found her. End quote. Enriquez Fierro says she learned in November 2011 via Facebook that a government forensics office had found her daughter's remains in 2009 in San Agustin in the Valle de Juarez, about an hour from her home. No one had told her. She had said, quote, before living in this nightmare that I think I will never wake up from, I trusted the police. I realized everything was a lie. There are no authorities. There's no justice. There's no respect. There's nothing. Nobody gets punished, end quote. Norma Laguna Cabral said that her daughter, Idali Laguna, who was 19, never came home one afternoon in 2010. Two years later, Authorities found fragments of her skull in the Navajo Arroyo in the rural Valle de Juarez, a region known for cartel violence, located roughly an hour east of the city. Ledema Ortega's daughter, Paloma Angelica Escobar, who was killed in 2002 at the age of 16. Paloma loved cats and worked in the same airplane parts factory as her mother while attending high school. She dreamed of studying English and worked in tour- and working in tourism or as an interpreter. She hoped to one day adopt children. 
On March 2nd, 2002, Paloma went to a computer course and never came home. Her mother searched for her for 27 days. When she filed the police report, authorities minimized her concerns, saying Paloma, quote, probably just wanted to have some fun, end quote, with a boyfriend. Activists, both local and global, have protested the culture of economic inequality, impunity, and misogyny that enabled violence against women women in Juarez. In 1999, a group of feminist activists founded Casa Amiga, Juarez's first rape, crisis, and sexual assault center. The center works to provide women in Juarez with a refuge against violence, therapy, legal counsel, and medical attention. In 2002, a social justice movement named Ni Una Mas, which in Spanish means not one more, was formed to raise international awareness to violence against women in Juarez. Participants demanded that the Mexican state implement strategies that prevent violence against women, including murder and kidnappings, and that the state conduct competent investigations on crimes already committed. In 2004, the largest ever Solidarity March across the border in El Paso, Ciudad Juarez occurred, drawing 5,000 to 8,000 people from around the world. Norestas Ijas de Regreso a Casa AC, which in Spanish means our daughters back home, also formed in response to the violence against women in Juarez. The organization has also worked to bring domestic and international media attention to violence against women in Juarez. Veronica Corcado, director of the Municipal Institute of Women, located in downtown Juarez, says the agency has been working on a series of initiatives to increase safety there. This work has sadly turned out to be quite risky. In 2010, Maricela Escobedo Ortiz was assassinated by a shot to the head at point-blank range while demonstrating for justice in front of the governor's palace in Chihuahua after the killing of her 16-year-old daughter, Ruby Marisol Freyer Escobedo. Feminist poet Susana Chavez, who coined the protest cry, Not One More, was found strangled in 2011, her left hand severed. And in January 2020, feminist artist Isabel Cabanillas de la Torre, 26, was found shot to death in downtown Juarez. In summer 2021, the new $3.5 million Fiscalia Especial Daza de la Mujer building in the Salvacar neighborhood of East Juarez will house eight detectives and 15 prosecutors already trying to clear a backlog of more than 200 cases. This was built for detectives to investigate crimes against women. That same year, a quote-unquote gender violence alert was issued due to the number of homicides and cases of violence against women. The violence and murders continue in Juarez to this day as do the protests. Del, what are your thoughts on these killings and the police response? I think that it is very, very sad state of the culture in Juarez that there is such a increased amount of violence, especially when you consider that is it that it is increasing because women are gaining more equality and more freedoms through their economic improvements. It's definitely great to see the different organizations that are 
working on trying to improve the lives of women and trying to make sure that there is some sort of justice in all this. I think that the police ought to be ashamed of themselves for essentially not caring about the crimes that are happening. Even if you look at it from a, well, their overwork perspective, they are putting people's lives, especially women's lives, in danger by essentially sending the message of, even if something happens to you, even if it's horrific, even if it happens to multiple people, we're going to sit on our asses and not do anything. And I think that people know that. And I think that it's not a just a thing of violence begets more violence. I think it's, well, if I'm not going to go to jail for it, let me just get out my aggression now. Um, let me just harm my partner, harm the activists and different people that are trying to increase the rights of women. And let me harm strangers on the street because I'm unable to get past my misogyny and machismo. And I know that some people dislike that term, but I think in the broader sense, making sure that violence against women is not fueled by the male ego is important. And if machismo is word for it, then machismo is the word that I think that we should use. I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think that the stories that we laid out, of course, they are just a select few of the numerous stories, but it's definitely horrific to hear about. And you think of all the potential and the life that was taken away from these young girls. It's just a sad situation. And I definitely hope that it improves. And I hope that at some point they're able to find justice. What about you? It's such a story filled with heartbreak and so many other levels and layers of, like we were saying, misogyny, capitalism, corruption, incompetence. It's really fascinating and just despicable like to hear about this at the same time. It was making me think a lot about the Trail of Tears or the Highway of Tears, excuse me, that we covered um, in an earlier episode about the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls along the highway in Canada that kind of go unnoticed too. But I feel like this is like to the nth degree. I mean, can you imagine 400 people going missing in like a 10-ish year period and no one doing anything? It's horrible. Hearing the police response, to think that they brought the remains to the wrong person, I can't even imagine how painful that is for the already traumatized families. And we are going to talk about the mothers and the families in a minute. It is really nice to see these people come together. I liked learning about the organizations too, and especially hearing about how they're trying to share safety, how to increase safety when the police that's their literal job, are not doing that. People just taking matters into their own hands because they have to. It's embarrassing. And I do, like you said, Del, of course, misogyny is a worldwide issue, but we have to think about how that is, you know, how it factors in here because I don't think there's any denying 
that misogyny is at the root of a lot of these murders, whether it's intimate partner violence, whether it's, you know, someone that hates women that's killing these women or someone that's taking advantage of the vulnerability that these factories and the city creates for these women. It's just so upsetting to hear about. And I can't imagine what living there is like. I would be I mean, I would be scared hearing this. I don't know if that's how the average woman in the city feels. I'd like to hear some more about that. I wanted to mention, uh, and I think we'll have this linked in our resources, but I was reading a report. I don't know if it was from Texas Monthly, I think. In around 2003, one of their reporters went to report on these crimes being committed. And when she was there, she was approached by a man that asked her if she wanted work. And she very much felt in danger in this situation. And it made her stop and think about how these mur- these women and girls, you know, if they are maybe being lured somewhere under the pretense of work because they're, you know, they're trying to support themselves, their families, you know, who knows? And that's how they're being taken advantage of. Um, And I didn't really come across anything else that mentioned this as I was doing some research, but she had mentioned, I guess that the police and sometimes the media in Mexico has really talked in a derogatory way about these victims and calling them stupid. And I guess maybe essentially blaming them. But again, if this is the case where people are being approached and then taken advantage of, and of course we don't know what this man's intentions were, but I do think like women's intuition is a thing. And in a city that is seemingly unsafe for women, you got to be on alert and you, you can't, I think she did the right thing by like trying to back away and who knows what that could have led to. But with that in mind, Del, do you think there is a serial killer at bay in this area? I, Of course, I personally don't think that all of these murders are committed by one person. There's absolutely no way. It's a, definitely a series of people. But to me, I don't think it would be a surprise if a serial killer did commit 5, 10, 50, 100 of these cases. What do you think? I think you're absolutely right. I definitely don't think that all of these murders can be attributed to one person or even group of people that are linked to each other. It definitely seems that it's more of a cultural thing where people feel like it's okay to kill because they're going to get away with it. And of course, when you have such high number of murders, you do have the high probability for a serial killer. These murders of women and girls in Juarez is considered femicide. Femicide can be defined as intentional killing of a gender-related motivation. Femicide may be driven by stereotyped gender roles, discrimination towards women and girls, unequal power relations between women and men, or harmful social norms. The UN says femicide and gender-based killings, quote, are the most brutal and extreme manifestation of a continuum of violence against women and girls that takes many interconnected and overlapping forms. Whether through domestic violence or sexual assault, the victims of femicide are women who were killed because they are women. A handful of countries, including Mexico, legally recognize femicide as distinctly different from homicide. 
There is no global standardized or consistently recorded data on femicide, but in 2021, it's estimated around 45,000 women and girls worldwide were killed by their intimate partners or other family members, including fathers, mothers, uncles, and brothers. However, the actual number is likely much higher. This means that on average, more than five women or girls were killed every hour by someone in their own family. Current and former intimate partners are by far the most likely perpetrators of femicide, accounting for an average of 65% of all intimate partner and family-related killings. Femicides fall into two categories, intimate and non-intimate femicide. The latter includes women killed during armed conflict as weapons of war, so-called quote-unquote honor killings, where a woman is killed for allegedly bringing shame to her family, the murder of women because of their race or sexuality, femicides perpetrated by other women acting as quote-unquote agents of patriarchy, and the killing of transgender women. Like all forms of gender-based violence against women and girls, femicide is a problem that affects every country and territory across the globe. According to a UN report, in 2021, Asia reported the largest number of female intimate partner and family-related killings with an estimated 17,800 victims. There continues to be significant limitations in data and information on gender-related killings of marginalized groups. Gender-based killings can and must be prevented through primary prevention initiatives Focus on transforming harmful social norms and engaging whole communities and societies to create zero tolerance for violence against women, early intervention and risk assessment, and access to survivor-centered support and protection, as well as gender-responsive policing and justice services. An acknowledgement of the misogynistic nature of these crimes, but also that there will be more accurate data collection that can in turn lead to better policy and practices that protect women. National experience, for example, in South Africa strongly suggests that substantive and sustained decreases in femicide can be achieved through comprehensive laws and policies aimed at preventing gender-based gender based violence against women, firearms, control legislation, and activism of women's activism of women's rights and community-based groups. Del, any thoughts on these statistics that we mentioned? I mean, they're definitely not surprising. I think that in a lot of cultures around the world, women are viewed as second-class citizens. They are viewed as more akin to property than another human. And so it's not surprising that there is such a high rate of crimes. We've talked about IPV on previous episodes, and we know that it continues to be an issue. And I think that one thing that continues to cause problems is the fact that it's hidden in a lot of ways. People don't like to talk about it. People are ashamed and sometimes don't seek out help. And you also have the recurrent patterns that are typically involved in IPV where a victim is able to leave, but then they return and then the violence gets worse and worse and ultimately leads to intimate partner killings. I think that one of the biggest things when it comes to prevention is that education piece. 
I think that in a lot of ways that there needs to be a sort of myth busting when it comes to some societal norms and expectations for gender roles and making sure that you educate people on knowing that it's okay for someone to be different than the norm. It doesn't make them less worthy of living. It doesn't make them subhuman. It just makes them their own unique person that deserves respect and definitely deserves their right to continue to live. What about you? I was kind of surprised by some of these numbers, but like you said, it's not that shocking. The number, I mean, I know we said that it's much higher, but 45,000 seemed kind of low to me. But like we said, it's probably much higher. I thought hearing how what falls under non-intimate femicide was kind of interesting, especially when it included women being killed during armed conflicts as weapons of war. I thought that was really fascinating and it's not something I often think about. Or women killing other women acting as agents of patriarchy. I mean, that definitely happens. I I don't know too many cases of that, but kind of something I want to look into now. I do think prevention is probably the biggest piece of how how to stop this. And it is simple prevention programs and that education. It really is that because so much of this stuff goes back to how women have been viewed for hundreds of years in cultures around the world. And that is kind of a thing in a lot of a majority of cultures that women are second class citizens I think we, of course, this is obvious, but having these laws like, I don't know, like violence against women acts is really important and taking cases of intimate partner violence seriously so that these people cannot go and reoffend or, you know, in America that, that these people can't go and buy deadly weapons. It's obviously not something that can be fixed in a day, in a year, whatever. This is something that takes it really takes everybody working hand in hand as like cheesy as that sounds. But I think we all kind of have a responsibility to support people that we know are experience support women in our lives that are experiencing violence or, you know, harassment of any kind men on educating themselves and calling out people in their lives that, do uphold these horrible standards and are maybe more violent and aggressive towards women. We all have a role to play. And like we were saying, like it is as simple as just like supporting someone or telling someone like, why are you saying that? Or why are you treating her this way? Because that stuff spirals. And like you said, Del, we've talked about domestic violence, intimate partner violence on here dozens of times. And it has shown to be, you know, like a, it's a cycle that needs to be stopped. And I think one of the important pieces is also making sure that men check other men, right? Because there's only so much change that can happen if only 50% of the population is talking about it. And I think that men would be much more receptive to another man saying like, hey, you know, what you just said was out of line or, hey, we don't treat women like that. We don't talk about women like that. I think that men would be much more responsive to that and would actually cause them to think like, oh, okay, maybe I should change my like mindset on this. Maybe I should frame this in a different way. And I think that that could reduce the kind of culture around 
how men speak about women and really help to, in the minds of misogynistic men and women, really see women as equal and not deserving of maltreatment. We talked a little bit about mothers and family members having to do a lot of this police work themselves. The mothers of missing and murdered women and girls in Juarez have said that the police do not help them and they feel that it's up to them to find their daughters. Perla Janina Reyes Loya, whose daughter Jocelyn Calderon Reyes has been missing since 2012 when she was 13 years old. And Perla said, quote, authorities deny femicide. They don't respect women's rights. They always try to cover this up. They say nothing's happening when in fact our daughters have been missing for years, end quote. Like we said, authorities have been indifferent, insensitive, and even hostile toward the victims' families who are often subject to harassment and threats. One relative of a murder victim received a threatening voicemail message warning her to drop the case, and the caller ID showed that the call had come from the state judicial police. Norma Ledesma Ortega, who we mentioned earlier, is a lawyer and the founder of the organization Justicia para Nuestra Hijas, or Justice for Our Daughters. In 2016, she earned her law degree 14 years after her daughter Paloma was killed in March 2002. At the time, Norma had an elementary school education and worked in a factory that produced parts for airplanes. She vowed then to get justice for her daughter and other missing women. With this legal weapon, she said, I can fight for all other victims as well. She believes it's important for the public to hear and share the stories of femicide victims, saying, quote, doing this might be the only thing that can make the Mexican government feel accountable, end quote. Together, the mothers have been able to unite and fight for their children. In November 2001, the bodies of eight young women were found in El Campo, Agua de Nero, an abandoned cotton field on a busy street near the Macadura Association headquarters. Their bodies showed signs of extreme brutality and sexual violence. Groups of volunteers in Juarez and Chihuahua organized searches of desert areas to find bodies and detect evidence left behind by police. In February 2002, volunteers searching the Juarez site where eight bodies had been found discovered clothing that was recognized by the mother of one of the victims who participated in the search, as well as hair, shoes, and clothing remnants, none of which had been gathered by police investigators during their search of the area three months earlier. That same year, three mothers presented a petition against the state of Mexico to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. The state argues that their daughter's killings were isolated crimes and not part of a systematic pattern. In 2009, the Inter-American Court ruled that Mexico mishandled the Capo Agua de Nero investigations failing to protect the victim's human rights. The first time a state was held responsible for gender-based killings setting a historic precedent. The women also provide support for one another. Norma Laguna, who was also mentioned earlier, said, quote, when we meet with other mothers who have been through the same thing, it's like therapy for us, end quote. She went on to say, quote, only we can understand what we are going through, the courage, the disappointment, the helplessness, the despair, the sadness, the pain, that pain that never goes away, end quote. I really respect these women. I don't know if you have anything else you wanted to add. Just in agreement with you that they are definitely strong and powerful, and I hope that they find success in their 
missions. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the women and girls of Suyu.Auras. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on Andrew Luster. As always, stay safe.